Live from the BBC, The Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of The Naked Scientist with me, Dr Chris Smith, Dr Katarni. Hello. And with Dr Phil Rosenberg. Hello. Now this week we're turning the show on its head and we're actually starting clothed rather than naked. And that's because we're going to play the scientific equivalent of strip poker. You ring in and ask us a question and if we can't answer it, we'll lose some clothing. Will we be naked by the end of the show? You can watch it all on the webcam. Our fate is, so to speak, in your hands. Call now 08459 25 2000. Any question to see science really stripped down and the facts laid bare. Um, yes, I hadn't realised there was a webcam in the studio. Sorry, did I forget to tell you we were doing that this week? It's lucky I've got good pants on Sorry, today. my mistake. Um, yes. So uh, get phoning in. That will be very interesting. Um, we're also going to be bringing you some top stories from the news this week. Uh, Chris is talking about a pigeon-powered blog. Uh, intriguing to hear about this. Pigeons texting their messages back to a blog. Um, I will be talking about why if you're going to give someone flowers for Valentine's Day coming up, it's probably best if they don't take it lying down. And Phil will be talking about a new planet that is bigger than Pluto. Absolutely intriguing. So uh, stay tuned, listen to that, and also get phoning in with your questions now, 08459 252000. And of course, we also have our quiz if you want to phone in. Absolutely. And the prize this week is actually a home CCTV system. So get phoning in. Get winning that CCTV system. Should keep people like you out of people's houses, Phil, eh? <laughs> Absolutely. So just give us a call. Uh, that's BBC Radio in the East, and that's 0845 300 1090. Or Chris at the naked scientist.com. Uh, 08459 25 2000, Phil. I've read the wrong <laughs> phone number. My apologies. But I was close. You can ring that one if you like, but I can't promise we'll be there. Uh, of course, there is our, our kitchen science this evening. Derek and Dave are at Astley Cooper School in, in uh, Hertfordshire tonight, and they're going to be showing you about the chemistry of. Well, the rate of equation and also why lizards need to warm themselves up and sunbathe a bit in the morning in order to get going. So how temperature affects the rate at which re- reactions happen. To do tonight's experiment, you're going to need one of those funky glow sticks. Remember the things? You go to firework nights and someone gives you this funky thing which you sort of snap it a bit and then it has this amazing glowing colour. You need one of those and some ice. So stay tuned to find out what you can do with that. That's Kitchen Science and it's all coming up shortly here on The Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist Podcast, brought to you by thenakedscientist.com. Well, it's Valentine's Day coming up, coming up on the 14th. Lads, don't forget. Um, I'd like flowers, please, and maybe chocolates and a nice dinner. And some odour eaters, yeah, by all accounts. Eaters. Yes, we'll be talking about that later as well. But speaking of smell, um, some researchers in Toronto, uh, McGill University, sorry, Montreal, have found that whether you're standing up or lying down dip- affects your sense of smell. So uh, this is maybe important if you're going to give someone flowers on Valentine's Day. And they found that if you're sitting up, upright, you actually smell better, um, as in you can smell things better. I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, maybe you're further away from your feet as well. But uh, yes, they conducted some experiments using um, MRI scanners. These are medical uh, scanners where you can see what's going on in people's brains. And they found that if people are lying down, they, their smell centres in their brains aren't activated as much as if they're sitting up and they're smelling these things. And they did, in fact, test it with rose odour. Uh, they found that over 60% of people had a decreased sensitivity to the smell of roses when they were lying down. Not sure if that's the same for the smell of feet. Uh, I don't know. Um, but, yes, yeah, so if you're going to give someone flowers this year, make sure that they're sitting up. 
just say a quick hello to a couple of people. Uh, I've got to say hello to John in Sedalia, who's in Missouri in the US, and he says, just wanted to let you know that your podcast has found a home here in the heartland of the USA, uh, and also also in the US, David Viedner's in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and he says, during a recent trip to the UK, I noticed how very few hotels and windows had bug screens, and while I spent plenty of time outdoors, I didn't notice a single mosquito bite. Well, I'm glad our country's good for something, David. Thanks very much for writing in to The Naked Scientist. If you're out there, somewhere in the wilds, around the world, do drop us a line. We love hearing from you. Uh, you can write to me, chris at nakedscientist.com. And yes, what we're saying about feet, we've got an email from Mark Tupper in Seattle. And he says, to let you know, I really enjoy your podcasts. He just listened to the Dirty Socks episode that we did a few weeks ago, our, um, our science experiment through the local schools. And he said that the plane that he was on was landing. He had to stop listening, so he didn't know who had the stinky feet. And here's the killer. My guess from looking at the pictures on your website is it must be cat. Shows that we've got intelligent listeners, doesn't it? Eh? <sighs> Good grief. Right, quick story now. The Smog blog. Now, I can't mention this at the beginning, but would you believe it? Uh, a researcher called Beatrice de Costa, who's at the University of California, Irvine, over in the US, is going to release a flock of 20 pigeons, all equipped with a bird backpack, which is uh, equipped to monitor pollution levels. Now, this, they're going to take to the air on the 5th of, of August, later this year, and this backpack has been specially modified so that these pigeons will be able to monitor air quality. There's a sensor built into this backpack that looks for carbon monoxide and another uh, particular pollution molecule called nitrogen dioxide and it will then send information on the air quality the birds are sampling over San Jose, California back to a central station using SMS text messages so they've built a sort of circuit board into this backpack that incorporates a mobile phone too and a website called a blog will pick up this information and publish it in real time on an interactive map so you'll be able to see where the pollution hotspots are over this particular area of the US and where these birds go in real time and so this is the first time anyone's tried to do this so I, I guess this this is really giving us a bird's eye view of what pollution's doing over San Jose. Are pigeons actually any good at texting? This is what I want to know. Do they just... Have you never heard of Pigeon Post? Pi- yeah. Phil, what you got? OK, I've got a, uh, a story here. Astronomer Bertoldi from the University of Bonn, Germany, has actually done a measurement now on what could be a new planet for the solar system. N- now, this planet is... It was discovered last year. It's actually not got a name yet. It's just got a designation number, 2003UB313. Now, unfortunately, the object's so far away that we actually can't just look at it through a telescope to see how big it is. We're going to do a few tricks looking at how much sunlight is reflected off its surface. And they've now managed to work out its size about a year later. It's actually 50% bigger than the planet Pluto. So it's pretty much guaranteed to be a planet. Except that there's a bit of controversy about whether Pluto's a planet as well. So we're really asking the question, is Pluto a planet? Is this new one a planet? It's also on a really funny orbit, isn't it? Because most planets are on a plane, aren't they? They orbit on the same plane relative to the sun, and this one's at a real angle. Absolutely. It's actually inclined at about 44 degrees to the rest. And as well as that, it's not circular. Most of the planets are on a pretty circular orbit. They stay the same distance away from the sun all the time. Whereas this one comes in really close, actually inside the orbit of Neptune, then goes all the way out again, a long way out, past Pluto, and keeps on going. But, Phil, can I just ask a simple question, which is, why are all the planets in this one plane, why aren't they all higgledy-piggledy all over the place? OK, well, when the, uh, the solar system itself formed, how it worked was that a big cloud of gas was just floating around, essentially, in the galaxy, minding its own business. Then something happened, possibly a, a star exploded, or in a big supernova, or some other event, and that caused the whole of this gas to start to collapse in on itself, just with its own gravity. Uh, now... The sun formed in the middle as a, a big ball of gas, and as that formed, 
a disc formed around it. It formed a nice flat disc because of the angular momentum, because of the way it was spinning. And then within that disc, all the planets formed. So that's why they're all in a small flat disc, all in the same orbit around the sun, going in the same direction. So the one that's got a wonky orbit, could that have had some kind of collision or something that would have sent it off wonky? Yep, absolutely. It could have had a, a collision with another object. It could be that it um, had a near miss from another object and the gravity of the two spanned them off in, in different directions. Because it, wasn't it a few years ago they found some other planets, Sedna? Or they're, they're always finding things and saying, this is a new planet. Absolutely, and that's the big controversy because these objects are actually all in a band right at the far outside of the solar system called the Kuiper Belt. Uh, and these these objects all orbit in this belt, and um, Pluto is just the second biggest one, and now this UB313 is the biggest. So should there be a planet, or, or should we designate them all as Kuiper Belt objects, not planets at all? Mm, and should astrologers be worried? Astrologers or astronomers? Astrologers, the you question. finding these new planets, it could mess up your stars. You're listening to The Naked Scientist, Dr Chris, Dr Cat, and Dr Phil. We're here with you on The Naked Scientist tonight on BBC Local Radio right around the eastern counties until 7. We're taking your science questions on anything. It's a free-for-all. You just phone in this evening and we'll insert your questions throughout the programme. And if we can't answer your question, then you could see us getting naked on the webcam uh, because if we can't answer, answer some of your questions, then we'll take an item of clothing off, uh, clothing off in turn until, well, we run out of clothing to take off, really. The phone number, 08459 or you can email me chris at nakedscientist.com. I got a little email here from Ellie Sykes, who actually is in the States, but she says, Hello, Dr. Chris. I love listening to your show. My mum and I listen in on the podcast, and we always make, uh, make quite a game of trying to do, outdo each other on the science fact or science fictions. Um, so thanks very much for a hugely entertaining evening. My family moved to Chicago from London about three years ago, and since then I've lost my accent, yet mum and dad still have theirs. Why is this? Where do accents come from? And do some people naturally pick up accents better than others? Thanks very much. We're all looking forward to next week's show and that's from ellie what do you think about accents you guys i definitely think that some people are accent sponges and other people aren't because my sister's a complete accent sponge whereas i've managed to keep mine and as far as i know dialects and accents you do pick them up from the people around you when you're learning to speak so people have a similar accent to their mums and dads but as to why some people should be better or not maybe it's to do with your, your sort of musical ear and uh, and how well you interpret sounds what do you reckon I agree, and I think that young people are more likely to be impressionable compared with adults, and so they're much more likely to want to imitate people around them because accents are, after all, imitation. And the reason that things like this occur is because when you take a group of people all in one place, the person who tends to be the strongest individual tends to attract imitation amongst the other people who respect that individual. So if someone has a particular way of speaking, other people try and blend in and talk like that, and as a result, when you geographically isolate a group of people in one place, say Australia... UK, US, any country you want to look at, people try and speak in the same way. And that's why if you get a small group of individuals starting a, a colony, if you like, then it gently, the way in which they speak spreads out from there until everyone tries to sort of average out at the same kind of way of speaking. I think that's really where accents come from. It is, of course, The Naked Scientist, and uh, we are taking your science questions, but we're also doing some experiments live on air this evening. And now it's time to join Derek and Dave, who are Astley Cooper School, where we're finding out why it is that lizards may need to do a spot of sunbathing. Derek, good evening. Hello, and welcome to Astley Cooper School in Hemel Hempstead. And uh, Dave and I have actually come here today to do some naked science in the science lab right here. So uh, welcome. And we'll be doing uh, an experiment for which we want you to predict what happens. So uh, keep listening, and uh, we'll be back later on in the show to tell you all about that. But of course, we've got some science coming up right now. And of course, Dave is with me to explain all of that. So Dave, what is it we're up to? 
Well, Derek, we're going to be using glow sticks to try and find out why lizards and snakes and things have to sunbathe in the mornings and lots of other stuff like that. Excellent. Thank you very much, Dave. Uh, and also with us are two of the students here. I wonder if you could just introduce yourselves for us. Give us your name and year, please. I'm Jodie and I'm in Year 11. I'm Tom and I'm in Year 11. Okay, now then, today's experiment involves glow sticks. Okay, now my main experience of glow sticks is from, you know, partying, clubbing, you know, enough about that. That's not what we're here for. But perhaps you guys have come across glow sticks as well. Jodie, have you come across them? Yeah, at parties and things. (laughs) Whoa, Dave, these year 11s are hardcore. Okay, well, that's fine. Um, Anyway, Dave, what are glow sticks actually? I mean, we've got one, we've got a few here actually, haven't we? So tell me about them. Well, if you look really closely at this glow stick, okay, you can just about see a second tube down the middle of it. So you've got one tube inside another tube. The central tube is made out of something brittle like glass, and the outside one's made out of plastic, which is flexible. And in the central one, there's something called hydrogen peroxide, which which is what you use to bleach your hair and stuff. And in the outside tube, there's a special dye and something to react with the hydrogen peroxide. So when the hydrogen peroxide reacts with it, you get lots of energy, and that goes into the dye. Now, Tom, I'd like you to take this glow stick and very carefully break this glow stick in the middle. Where's the light happening? There's a light appeared where I cracked the glow stick. So what's happening here is that hydrogen peroxide in the middle is slowly escaping and mixing with the chemicals on the outside. And where they mix, you can see the light. So if you'd like to shake that glow stick and really mix up the two chemicals. Now, before you shook it, I mean, where was the light? Just where I'd cracked it. OK, and what, what are we seeing now, now you've shaken it? It's starting to spread along the glow stick. Break it in a couple more places and really shake it up. Okay, and so Tom is now shaking his glow stick wildly, so we are essentially having a party here, really, aren't we, Dave? Okay, and now we have two nicely glowing glow sticks. Now, the light's been given off by a chemical reaction, and we're going to cool these glow sticks down and see what's going to happen to this chemical reaction. Okay, so basically we've got a reaction happening here when we cracked that kind of tube that was inside the tube of hydrogen peroxide, but we're going to see what happens when we actually make it cold. So, guys, have you got any ideas? I mean, what's going to happen, do you think, Jodie? I have no idea. <laughs> OK, and yourself, Tom, any idea what's going to happen when we plunge that thing into ice? No, not really. <laughs> OK, all right, well, we've got some uh, proper science exploration going on here. OK, so let's do it then. What have we got here? Well, here we have a polystyrene bucket full of ice. We've added some salt as well, which reduces the temperature. And so if you guys would like to jam your glow sticks well into this... Okay, so what we've got then is uh, a polystyrene bucket, which is full of ice, and there's some water around the ice as well. And uh, Dave has just helped Tom and Jody jam their glow sticks into the ice, so they're completely submerged there, and uh, they're very, very cold, therefore. And the question for you at home now is, what do you think is going to happen? And uh, we've asked Tom and Jody that already. They didn't really know. So do you have any ideas? And indeed, do you have an explanation if you've got an idea too? If you do, we'd very much like you to give us a call. Uh, the number is 08459 252000, and you can also reach us by email. That's uh, chris at thenakedscientist.com. And please don't forget there are prizes to be won if you can call in with a prediction and a good explanation too. We'll be back here at Ashley Cooper School in Hemel Hempstead, actually with two new volunteers as well, uh, to help us um, uncover what happens and an explanation from Dave. So uh, until then, it's back to you in the studio. Thank you very much, Derek. If you want to have a go at Kitchen Science, remember there's a prize in store if you're first through on the telephone on 08459 25 2000 with the correct observation. So get calling now. Of course, we also take calls if you want to have a go at tonight's competition. And up for grabs is a home CCTV system so you can push up the security of your home and keep people like Phil and Cat out of your living room. I'll tell you what, I've got something living in my house that isn't human. I'm not joking. Guess what I've got, I think, what I've got in my house. Iguanas. 
Now, I'll tell you what, I'm going to... I'm going to cast this out to the bet vote out there. Everyone across the eastern region, what do you think I reckon is living in my living room? Donkeys. It's not a pet. This thing is an intruder. And, and I'll tell you how I've arrived at this sort of yes. reason why I think I've got what I have. But um, you can give us a ring on 08459 25 2000 if anyone can work out what it is. And I'll release a few more details as the show goes across. But remember, we are taking your science questions on anything to do with anything this evening. Just phone in 08459 25 2000 and you can have a go also at our quiz because we have this home CCTV uh, footage system to, uh, to offer as well. David's rung in from Norfolk and he says, how does he know the answer that you're actually going to give is correct? He's says you can say any answer and he wouldn't know if it was right or wrong you could say anything to get out of removing your clothes nope nakedness comes naturally to me david so i'm more than happy to strip off in the name of science if it helps you to learn a little bit more about it so please get calling now 08459 25 2000 and also now we have petro's podcast pick for the week um, we're coming to the last of the series by david lemberg who's been talking all about nanotechnology and various applications of it and in tonight's episode final episode we're going to hear about the future of computing and how nanotechnology can help as Edward G. Robinson's gangster said to Humphrey Bogart's war hero in the great movie classic Key Largo, I want more. That's what we want in computing, more memory, faster processing, brighter and sharper displays. We want state-of-the-art computing for our small businesses, industry, healthcare, robotics, and space exploration. For long-range space missions, we want decisions to be made locally by the spacecraft itself. This will require enormous computing power at the petaflop level, a quadrillion floating-point operations per second. NASA is aiming toward petaflop computing using inorganic nanowires and carbon nanotube-based electronics. The result will be ultra-high performance machines with ultra-high density memory chips, a billion times more memory than is currently possible. Petaflop computing and a billion times more memory will immediately transform both the entertainment and communications industries. In communications, everything will occur in real time. No waiting. The only bottleneck will be bandwidth, and optical computing will take care of that, again thanks to breakthroughs in optics and materials on the nanoscale. And what about man-machine interfaces? What about reproducing what we have in our heads? Computation, pattern recognition, a variety of sensing protocols, and memory. The new wave of computing, based on nanotechnology, will turn science fiction into science fact within the next 10 to 15 years. Thanks for listening. And very many thanks to David Lemberg for his lovely little series. You can find out more about nanotechnology and also David's work at scienceandsociety.net. But that's the end of that series, so what do we need? We need your podcast picks. We need you to send in MP3s if you're working in science, if you know someone that's doing something interesting. Record it, turn it into an MP3, and email it to us at chris at thenakedscientist.com. Every week we're going to play the best one. They're going to be up on the website. So loads and loads of listeners around the world can listen to your stuff or your mate's stuff. Um, get emailing in. We really want to hear your MP3s. And uh, also, if you've got any comments on nanotechnology or want to know a bit more about it, then get phoning in tonight, 08459 25 On the way, we'll be finding out about an infectious cancer, not something you normally think that could happen, but actually scientists in Tasmania, off the coast of Australia, have discovered that there's a rather bizarre form of cancer that can be spread from one animal to another when they bite each other. That's Anne-Marie Pierce, and she's coming up shortly, and we'll also be taking a trip to the Louisiana wetlands around uh, New Orleans, where Hurricane Katrina did a little bit of damage last year and finding out exactly what that's all about. But before then, let's have a quick chat to first Michael, who is in Cambridge. Good evening, Michael. Good evening. 
You're live on The Naked Scientist. Thank you for joining us. What's your question? Uh, firstly, the invader in your living room. Yeah, you help me out. You say it's not human? No, it's definitely not. Is it your mother-in-law? Well, you, um, <laughs> do, do you know, I, I thought that at first, but then I thought, no, it couldn't be, because it, it's not destructive enough. But um, a good, good call, anyway. Any other ideas? Uh, yes, science. Um, uh, act of transport in plants. Mm. Um, how can it work? How can it possibly work? I don't understand. Uh, well, I guess we ought to explain to people exactly what active transport is first, shouldn't we? Uh, I, what everyone, m what Michael is actually referring to is the fact that in a plant you have a leaf which is receiving sunlight and it's taking in carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and it's building molecules of carbon dioxide together in a process called photosynthesis using the energy of the sun to make big molecules including sugars and some proteins and those sugars then get redistributed around the plant they go from the leaves if you're a potato plant for example they get taken down to the roots where all those sugar molecules get linked together to make big molecules of starch and that's called a potato and other, and other things do exactly the same thing how does that actually happen well the answer is michael that um there are two sort of transport systems in a plant and one of them just works in one direction there's a long tube essentially between the tip of a root and a leaf and that's called xylem and essentially those are dead cells which have been waterproofed with a special material called lignin and um and they have cellulose around them the hard woody material and they're essentially just long tubes and they're very very tiny they're about 0.01 millimeters across i think and at that kind of thickness they are tiny they are stronger the columns of water that gets into those things are stronger than the tensile strength of steel so they're incredibly tight bands of water and as the water evaporates from the leaf at the top end of the plant it pulls the water up from the root that's fairly intuitive and that doesn't take too much understanding but then your your problem of how did actually the sugars go from the leaf down to the root well scientists have wondered about this for quite a long time and originally people thought well perhaps it's just source and sink as it's known in other words if you make a lot of something in one place it tends to kind of move away from where there's a lot of it down to where there's not much of it uh, so in other words if you've got lots of sugars in the leaves then the sugars will slowly make their way down to the roots and when they get to the roots, there's essentially a sort of sucking a hoover effect because you're removing sugars there and turn them into starch. That's one possibility of how things are moved around in plants. But I think it's more cunning than that. And we know that there's a second transport system, phloem, and these are individual living cells that have individual plates between the cells that act a bit like sieves, and so they can actually control the direction that things move in those cells, one way or another. And although it's pretty sketchy exactly how they know how to control whether something goes up or down, I think that's, there's very good evidence that it really does work like that because plants do distribute things in just the right direction, one way or the other, according to which way they need it to go. And if you kill those cells, if you give poisons or heat to the plant to kill those living cells, the process stops. So we know that it uses energy and it's dependent on living cells in the plant. So it's really the plant making a decision which way to send those things. But that's really the extent of our knowledge at the moment. Um, I probably didn't get that quite right. What, what I meant was um, uh, in, the, in the roots, the normal process of uh, minerals diffusing into the roots, uh, mm. when the saturation in the roots is greater than the saturation in the soil, the yep. plant still manages to um, draw nutrients from the soil into the into the root. That was my understanding. Of sure, what, but that also was. takes that also takes energy. Yes, and I, I couldn't. We, I, I have no idea how the plant can physically draw. Ah, outside well, well, this is clever, because in the same way that if you look at your cells in your body, there's an electrical gradient between the inside of a cell in your body and the outside. In other words, the inside of a cell is slightly more negative 
than the outside is. And the way cells manage to do that is because they have the cellular equivalent of a, a revolving door, and it picks up three versions of a sodium on the inside of the cell and boots it out of the cell as it turns round, and it picks up two potassiums on the outside and brings it on the inside. So you're exchanging three pluses, sodium, yep. for two pluses on the outside. And because you boot out three and bring in only two, you therefore end up with an electrical difference. Yep. Now, because you've got an electrical difference, you can use that electrical difference to do some work for you. And what some things do, they have another clever protein in the cell membrane that says, OK, I'll use some of that electrical difference and I'll grab something which we want and pull it into the cell using the energy from that electrical difference. And that's active transport, and, and your cells are doing it all around your body to get glucose in all the time. That's how you pick up sugar from your bloodstream and shove it into the cells that want it. And that's how cells like the liver, even though they're stuffed with glucose sometimes, can get even more packed in. And I think plants are probably up to the same trick. That's quite remarkable. <laughs> well, thanks for, thanks for a great question, though. <laughs> Do you mind if we ask you some questions now? No, please do. Okay, here we go. Uh, you've got two goes at this, and you could win yourself a home CCTV system. Okay? This is fabulous because it's a CCTV camera home observation system for the home from Micromark. And so you can make your living room more secure. I'm rather jealous because I want to find out what this thing is that's invaded my living room. First question. Hydroponics, quite appropriate because you asked about plants. Hydroponics is the process of growing plants without any soil. Is that science fact or science fiction? Uh, fact. Yep, hydroponics um, means that plants are grown with their roots dipping into an oxygen-nutrient-rich broth, which supplies everything for the plant. A young kangaroo is called a doughy. Science fact or science fiction? Uh, that's fiction. Absolutely true. Uh, a young kangaroo, you see them always poking the head out of the uh, mother's pouch. That's called a joey, not a doughy. Well done, Michael. Two out of two so far. You're in the lead. Great having you on the programme. Great question. Thank you. See you later. Bye. Steve is in North London. Hello, Steve. Hi, good evening. Good evening. Thank you for joining us on The Naked Scientist. What would you like to know? Well, this is quite an interesting question. Uh, we occasionally look after a dog, some friends of ours, when they go on holiday. Mm. We notice that when the dog wheezes on the grass in the yeah. garden, that uh, occasionally, it, or more often than not, it dies. Well, the dog dies. No, <laughs> And, uh, the grass dies. Yeah, the grass. Ah, it's a relief. Yeah. And, uh, maybe four or six weeks later, mm. you notice that where the dog has weeds, the grass grows incredibly lush and green. Right. Uh, a lot faster than the surrounding grass. Um, I can answer this one, I think. Um, in your urine, and I think you'd find this if you went and peed on your lawn regularly, um, your urine contains loads and loads of waste products from your body. And um, there's a chemical called urea that basically humans make as a, a byproduct because we eat protein. You, you kick out urea. And um, this is quite toxic in large quantities. So when you wee right on the grass, you're going to poison it. Um, but then... Because the, the urea soaks into the ground, urea contains a lot of nitrogen, and nitrogen's a really good fertiliser. So it's going to get in the soil, distribute it itself a bit more, and be a good boost to the grass that's there. So it kills off the grass, and then it helps better grass to grow. So that's why you see it dead and then coming back even better. It's all down to nitrogen. So it's just like putting a nitrogen fertiliser on your 
Autograph. Exactly. So sure. you can pee on your lawn if you like. It's just that urine is, is quite concentrated, and uh, unless you've been drinking a lot of water, uh, then the urine you produce is, is pretty concentrated. And when you chuck that concentrated urine on the ground, it essentially dries out like a prune. The grass roots for a little while, so there the grass doesn't like it. So it it becomes very, very dried out and crispy and dies for a bit. But then when it re-sprouts, it's got a homemade fertiliser there ready to use, and so the plant grows really vigorously. That's very interesting. Well, I think we're going to stick with using a proprietary... bit of phostrogen <laughs> or something, yeah. <laughs> uh, OK, do you want to go at the quiz? Yes, please. Alicante is a type of wine. Is that science fact or science fiction? That's fact. No, Alicante is a type of tomato. You're and thinking of Chianti, fine. Steve. Oh, I am mean, <laughs> Minus 40 degrees is the same temperature in Celsius and Fahrenheit. Is that science fact or is that a porky? Uh, that is a porky. No, unfortunately, 40 degrees is exactly where the Celsius and Fahrenheit scales cross. So, minus 40 degrees, both the same. Well done, Steve. Okay. You, you've yet to score. <laughs> but it's a great question and thanks for joining us on the programme. OK, thanks. See you soon. The Naked Scientist, Dr Chris and Dr Cat, we're here live on BBC Local Radio right around the Eastern Counties until 7 and we're taking your science questions. It's a science free-for-all this evening. You phone in 08459 25 2000 with any question you want and we'll have a go at it for you with uh, Dr Phil over there on space science, Cat's talking about cells and cancer and urine and smelly feet too and I'll sort of pick up anything that comes in between. As I say, your questions 08459 25 2000 or email me chris at nakedscientist.com. Now we go down to Tasmania in Australia where Anne-Marie Pierce is a scientist at the Mount Pleasant Laboratories in Launceston. And for the last few years, they've found something terrible has been happening to an animal called the Tasmanian devil. Now, this is the world's only carnivorous marsupial. And in other words, these animals eat meat and they hop around similar to kangaroos. They're slightly different to kangaroos because they don't hop around on two legs. But they have nasty habits and they bite each other. And they've been developing these horrible facial tumours that eventually kill them because they can't eat properly. But no one really knew where these tumours were coming from or actually what was causing them. But now they think they know. And what's really spine-chilling about this is that it looks like this is an infectious cancer that one animal can pass to the next. It became very clear about three years ago that the Tasmanian devil's numbers were in great decline and they were in decline because they were dying of devil facial tumour disease. It generally starts in their mouth or around their lips and grows from there. Now, devils have the most disgusting behaviour. They fight over everything and they bite each other around the face. In other words, they sort of jaw wrestle. Now, these tumours are occurring where these wounds are, more or less, around the mouth and the face. They get very large and eventually the devils die, generally of starvation, because they're unable to feed. So the fact that you've got an injury on one devil which then turns into a tumour and it's inflicted by another devil kind of suggests this must be some kind of infectious phenomenon. Yes, uh, normally in tumours you will find a common cytogenetic or, or chromosomal breakpoint which actually defines the disease. Now, I expected to find that in the devil with various random rearrangements around it. Now, when I looked at them, they were just totally rearranged. It's a massive amount of rearrangement. So I looked at the next animal, and it was exactly the same. And there are no sex chromosomes in animals of either sex. And when you get something as complicated as the mix-up in these chromosomes in this cancer and when you can't find any sex chromosomes in the cancers in animals of either sex 
you start to think, hang on, we've got an infectious cell line. But this raises the obvious question, if you can transmit tissue from one devil to the other, that's almost analogous to an organ transplant, so why isn't it rejected? Why doesn't the devil's immune system kick in and just delete the hostile tissue? Well, this is another part of the puzzle. The devil's immune system isn't doing it. Now we know that either the the cell line itself, the infectious cell line, is capable of sliding under the devil's immunological radar, or there's something wrong with devil's immunity. Well, is this the first time that anyone spotted a disease like this as an infectious cell line, or are there other examples? There is an infectious dog tumour, a canine venereal sarcoma, which is believed to be spread that way. There is a difference between it and the devil disease, which is that the dog's immune system can overcome it and it regresses. To what sort of extent is this affecting devil populations in Tasmania? Is this just restricted to a small proportion of the population or is it having a major impact? Oh, we're talking major impact. Let me see, about slightly over 50% of the Tasmanian mass the, the devils are affected in and it seems to be spreading And is there any chance of curing it? We've had no goes at curing it because you can't catch every devil in Tasmania and give it chemotherapy. But wouldn't it be lovely if we could find a vaccine? The devil really was lurking in the detail. Anne-Marie Pierce from Launceston's Mount Pleasant Laboratories on the trail of the cause of devil facial tumour disease. The Naked Scientists. Supported by the Wellcome Trust. If you've just joined us, a very good evening to you. We are taking your science questions, anything on anything this evening. It's a free-for-all with Dr Phil, Dr Cat and me, Dr Chris, here on BBC Local Radio right around the eastern counties. 08459 25 2000 is our number, or you can email me, chris at nakedscientist.com. And uh, is speculating, Cat, what happens to all the illegal drugs that get seized by the police? How do they dispose of them? They have some really good parties. No, <laughs> um, as far as I know, they burn them. Um, and, and then inhale the products? or No, obviously not, Chris, because no police do drugs. Jenny's on the line. Hello, Jenny. Good evening. Welcome to us from Great Yarmouth. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. And your, what's your question? Um, blood. Uh, I'm recess negative group O. Yeah. And my parents are group A... And my brother is group A. Yeah. And I just wondered how I came to be this blood group. Right. With embers being A's. Okay. Uh, well, the, the way in which we work out blood groups is that O is referred to as a recessive allele. In other words, if you have group O, then your cells don't make any markers on their surface. They're little flags that are on the cell surface that the body uses to recognise them. Now, people who are group A can be group A because they've got one gene for making these little A markers on the cell surface and another gene that doesn't make any. That's, that's group O. So someone can be group A if they have one gene for A and one gene for O because you have two copies of these genes, one from your mother and one from your father. The other way that someone can be group A is if they have two copies of the A gene. So for what must have happened in you, if both your parents are group A... Okay, they must have genes A and O each, so that when a sperm meets an egg, the sperm has got an O gene in it, and the, and the egg has got an O gene in it, and when the two come together, you end up with two O genes, and so you end up as blood group O. That's how you've, you've got that blood group. Yeah, can I also ask, because um, I've been told, I mean, I've given my bone marrow hmm. um, to somebody, I went down to London for that yeah. years ago, um, but I was also told that my blood can be given to anybody else, but I can't have anybody else's. Is that right? Yes, you're, you're a very a kind person. You are the universal donor. Oh. Um, 
You, that's right. Uh, you can only receive blood from someone like you, group O, rhesus negative, and in fact there are only 15% of the population like you, and I'm like you too. Oh. Uh, now the rhesus factor is an additional gene, an additional flag on the surface of a cell, that's called the D allele. And uh, if you have that, then your cells just make an additional marker. And the reason that's important is when a lady gets pregnant, if she's like you and she has a dad, uh, far, sorry, uh, um, she has a husband who is rhesus positive, when they have a baby, the baby can be rhesus positive. And the result is that some of the baby's blood can mix with some of the mum's blood when the baby's born, and this can make the mum make antibodies against rhesus blood. Now, that's fine for the first pregnancy, but if you get pregnant again, then sometimes those antibodies can end up in the baby and cause all kinds of problems. So that's why people look out for it. I actually, um, did, I actually did have that problem. Did you? My first baby was fine. Yep. And uh, when my second daughter was born, um, she was actually born black and blue. Oh yeah, it's, it's because the, the antibodies for, that you've made against the, the, the rhesus blood get into the baby because at, when the baby gets to about 30 weeks of gestation, the body transfers from your bloodstream certain types of antibodies into the baby so that when it's born, it has protection against all the kinds of infections that you have been seeing over the nine months that you've been carrying the baby so that it's got protection from you for a while. And it also picks up some more of these antibodies from breast milk. The problem is that if you've made those antibodies against things that are on the baby's blood, then the antibodies latch onto the blood cells and damage them. And that's why you end up with a baby that, that bruises, that, well, it can show signs of, looks a bit like bruising, but it's where the blood cells are actually breaking down because of these antibodies. But actually, luckily, it can be dealt with by a dose of um, antibodies given to the mother at birth, and that stops it happening in future. Yeah. The reason that your blood can be given to anybody is because it doesn't have any of these little genetic flags on the surface. So no, when your blood cells go into another person, their immune system doesn't know what to do with your blood cells. It's got nothing to latch onto, so it ignores it. But your, your bloodstream has antibodies floating around that recognise any of those A markers or the other blood group B. And as a result, if someone were to give you a blood transfusion apart from your own blood group, then antibodies in your bloodstream would latch onto those cells very, very fast and start destroying them, and they'd form actually a big... A thrombus, a blood clot inside the blood vessels, and this can be fatal because it can cause things like a stroke. Oh. Does that clear that up? That's lovely. Thank you very much for your help. Quick go at the quiz, Jenny. Go on then. Bick was the inventor of the ballpoint pen. Fact or fiction? Um, fiction. You're quite right. Yes, it was a Mr. Byro that did actually invent the ballpoint. <laughs> Thomas Dolby invented the gramophone. Do you think that's fact or fiction, Jenny? Thomas Dolby. I think that's fiction as well. Absolutely correct. It was Thomas Edison who invented the gramophone and the light bulb as well. Well done, Jenny. Two out of two, you're equal first place at the moment. Fancy listening to the naked scientists in your bed, <laughs> on your way to work, or even at work? Mm -hmm. Why not subscribe to our podcast? For more information, visit nakedscientist.com forward slash podcast. It is the Naked Scientist, Dr Phil, Dr Cat and Dr Chris. We're here with you on BBC Local Radio right around the eastern counties until 7, taking your science questions. Anything on anything goes this evening, so get calling 08459 25 2000 or email me chris at nakedscientist.com. Right, now it's time to take a trip down to America's New Orleans and the surrounding Louisiana wetlands. Now, this area is a very important economic resource for the local population because it supplies enormous amounts of seafood and oil and gas, but they're also disappearing into the sea, in other words, the Gulf of Mexico, at the rate of something like the area of a football pitch every 30 minutes. 
Unfortunately, experts down there seem to be get, getting bogged down in trying to decide what to do about the problem, and em, Emma Maris has been down there to take a look at the scale of it, especially in the wake of Hurricane Katrina's visit late last year. The major problem has been going on since humans began there. The whole place is sinking, and normally what would happen is that the Mississippi River would tumble down all the sediment from the rest of the country, and that would make up the difference. But in order to live in southern Louisiana, they had to sort of cordon off the Mississippi River so that it wouldn't flood them out every year. And as a result, all the sediment goes shooting out into the Gulf of Mexico, and none of it ends up on the plane, and the plane turns into the Gulf of Mexico, and we're losing about... 62 square kilometres a year there. 62 square kilometres a year. I mean, that, that's a significant amount. That must be a football field a day or so. Well, in fact, it is a football field every 30 minutes. A staggering amount of loss. Is there any way to offset that, though? There's various approaches. Scientists tend to disagree on what the best is. In one place, you can let a little bit of the river out of its levees so that it can bring some natural sediment onto the marsh. Another option is you can actually build land. You can sort of build islands or terraces with a big backhoe and set them up to stop the waves from eroding the shore. You can even pipe sediment from one place to another with these big pipes like the ones they use for the oil industry. Have any of these strategies actually been shown to be effective, though? It depends on what time scale you're looking for. A freshwater diversion, for example, one of the largest in the world is the Carnarvon Diversion. It's only saving something like 61 square kilometers over 50 years, which is, as we know, less than the average yearly loss. But it is pushing out the salt water. That's another big problem is as the salt water penetrates up through these marches, it just changes the entire ecosystem. What was the impact of the hurricane? Did that speed up the inevitable? Yeah, the USGS has suggested that perhaps we lost 161 square kilometers just due to the hurricane. It ripped up the marsh sort of by its hair. It just pulled the grass out of the ground, threw these sort of marsh balls around everywhere, tumbled the trees backwards. I saw dead alligators floating upside down. It just completely destroyed huge sections of it. Here in the UK, there's a strategy called managed retreat, and the idea is to actually give in to nature and let the sea come back to a certain extent. Is this something that people have considered doing and just sacrificing a bit of economic output for this area in order just to let nature take its course? Yes, certainly a lot of the researchers I spoke to were very much in favour of this. If you only have a certain amount of money, you have to prioritise. And there are a lot of people who suggest that we should just depopulate certain parts of Louisiana and focus all our energies on protecting the places like New Orleans that have the most economic value. This is, of course, politically dicey and difficult. So in your view, who's going to win in the long term? <laughs> I think in the long term, unless very, very large amounts of money are thrown at this problem, the winner in the end will be the Gulf of Mexico. Emma Maris immersing herself in the problem of the fast-disappearing, hurricane-ravaged Louisiana wetlands around New Orleans. And we've had an email in from Arthur Zatteren, who is down in uh, Louisiana, and he says that he looks forward to listening to the Naked Scientist podcasts every week during his 30-minute commute through Hurricane Katrina-ravaged New Orleans. And he says that he may see chaos out of the car's windscreen, but inside the car I hear intelligent, articulate and engaging dialogue, spoken in a manner that makes me long to revisit Cambridge. And he also says, seeing as you're so rude about me, he says, I suspect that Kat is as cute as she is smart. 
So well, that's not right. <laughs> no, I'm not going to say anything. I didn't says, need to, did I? <laughs> thanks for being a small oasis of intelligence in the enormous crap desert that fills the airways. So thanks very much to you, Arthur. Got a quick question from Ariel, who is in uh, Ariel Bradley, who's in the US, and he says, "Dear, dear Dr. Chris, the Naked Scientist is my favourite. I've got a science question. How do turtles stretch out their neck? What is their bone structure? I'd like to call in on the radio sometime, but I'm in the states and I don't know the phone number. If you'd like to call in from overseas, it's four four for the UK one two two Okay, but uh, anyway, what do we think about this turtleneck question? Um, Well, they probably don't have stretchy bones as such. Um, I think it's to do with the way that they live inside their shells and their necks are folded up. Yeah, their the shells are actually an extension of their body, so they can't actually crawl out of their shell if they don't want to. The shell is actually anchored by their ribs on the inside of the shell, and it's made of keratin, the same stuff that hairs and nails and horns and other things are made of, and talons, that kind of stuff. So in other words, it's the same material that you use to make hair. But inside that shell, their body is very muscular and suspended from their ribcage inside the shell by these big, strong muscles, and a turtle's neck can form an S shape either sideways or vertically and so when he wants to pop his head in and out and tortoises are exactly the same they either fold their neck sideways or fold their neck in a sort of s shape upwards and as a result it takes up some space and they can withdraw their head and their legs actually inside their shell to get some protection in fact they're, they're very old class of animals they're a kind of reptile and um they are around at the time the dinosaurs were 200 million years ago right let's have a quick chat to uh, dave who's in essex hello dave hello there. good evening welcome to the naked scientist all right what would you like to know uh, what I know is, uh, you know, like if you spill some water so on the kitchen floor, uh, yeah. it's obviously very slippery, um, right? Uh, yeah, when you want to sort of turn the pages over in a magazine, you put some water on your hands, yes, and it all of a sudden it becomes grippy. Right. Yeah, it's a very good point. Um, the reason for that, okay, is when you, if, if you look at your fingers, you'll see there are lots and lots of little ridges, aren't they? Yeah. And the fingers aren't a smooth surface. They're thrown into all these tiny folds and ridges. And if you make, if you lick your finger, what you do is create an obviously a little area of dampness on the tip of the finger. And when you press it hard onto a surface, you squeeze water out in exactly the same way as if you were squashing a sucker onto a window, it would stick. Or your car tax disc, for example, on your windscreen, it sticks in the same way you squeeze all the air out. You get this attraction of the water locking onto the molecules on the surface of the page and locking onto the ridges in your finger, and it gives you a bit more grip. Right, yeah. But when you've got your kitchen floor with a big puddle on it, what you end up with is a very big, thick layer of water, and you get a layer of water coating your foot, a layer of water coating the floor, and a layer of water between the two. And this is exactly the same reason that tyres on cars have tread, because you end up with a layer of water sandwiched between two other layers of water, and that is very slippery, and you skate along on it and skid if you're in a car. That's why you make tread, because the tread means the tyre squashes the water out through the tread pattern and stops you getting this sandwich, which is slippery, and gives your tyres better grip on the road. Um, and when your finger's on the magazine, a little bit of water means that you can squad your finger and make a strong attraction to the molecules on the page. Slightly different, but good question nonetheless. Oh, OK, nice one. OK, do you want to have a quick go at the quiz? Uh, yeah, go on then. Uh, I've actually lost my questions, Cat. Have you got my boy? I've found them now. I've got them. Here they are. You're a winner, then, aren't I? Uh, no, I'm not going to let you get away with that because I've, got, I've found them. The commonest element in the universe is hydrogen. Is that fact or fiction, Dave? Uh, fact. You're absolutely right. Hydrogen is the simplest element. It's got one proton, one electron circulating the proton, and it's the fuel that powers our sun. Um, four hydrogens are slammed together in the sun, and they make an atom of helium and loads and loads of energy, which we see as sunlight. Well done, Dave. One out of one so far. There are 206 bones in an adult human. Is that science fact or science fiction? Um, fact. 
Absolutely true. They're 206 in the adult, but in a baby you actually have a few le- a few more because some of them actually fuse together as you grow. So you end up with 206 in the end. Well done, Dave. Two out of two. Thanks for joining us on The Naked Scientist. No worries. Cheers. Laying the facts bare, The Naked Scientists. You're live on The Naked Scientist, James, in Bar Hill. Hello. Good evening. How are you? Very well, thank you. What can we do for you? Yeah, um, the question is, I understand x-rays and how x-rays work, but um, a couple of years ago, my son had a very serious eye injury, and over a period, sort of, it improved. Mm. Um, but he still had sort of a split vision in, in the right eye. Um, recently, we went to Addenbrooke to the um, ophthalmic clinic, and uh, they x-rayed or photographed his eye. They had a, a special camera. Okay. And she said, watch the screen, and you'll see the eye as we go through it. Yep. First of all, it looked like... Um, a sun, and it got sort of redder and redder until yep. we got to a little white sort of spot. Yep. And she said, that is the optic nerve. It looks like a cotton hour. It shouldn't look like that. Yep. Um, but he shouldn't be able to anyway. And I sort of should have asked at the time, how do they manage to photograph through the eye? Ah, well, it's actually not as difficult as it sounds because you have this amazing system on the front of your eyeball that you stick a contact lens onto uh, called the cornea. And just beneath that's a lens which helps to tweak the process. But this has an amazing focusing ability. And in a healthy person, it's there to focus light precisely onto your retina, the bit that does the seeing. So all you have to do is look with your camera in the front of the eye and shine a light so you can see what's going on inside the eye. And the front of the eye, the cornea and the lens, does the rest of the job for you. And it focuses the light straight onto the back of the eye. And if it doesn't do the job terribly well, you have some lenses in the actual camera that you're doing the looking with. And you can tweak those lenses a little bit. It'll focus the beam in sharply onto the back of the eye and you can see the retina and if you look around you'll see that white patch and that white patch is where the optic nerve comes into the back of the eyeball and all the nerve fibers that connect up to the retina actually run in and out of the eyeball they're gathered together in one bundle and the reason they're gathered together in one bundle is so that they don't take up too much space in the back of the eye which would of course create a blind spot and that's what your blind spot is if you've heard of that yes of course yeah yeah now i understand it seems so complex but obviously, well, it is complex. <laughs> well, the, the other way that we take pictures of the back of the eye is that you inject a dye called fluorescein, which is a nice f- yellow, glowing yellow stuff. They did, they did that as well. And uh, then when that goes through the blood vessels in the eye, it makes them glow when you shine a certain kind of light of a certain wavelength on them, and it shows where all the blood vessels are and where the blood's going. The tissue's usually healthy, so you can see exactly what the eye looks like using this dye to tell, the, to tell you what, it, what the structure is. Well, it's quite simple, really. Isn't it? Go at the quiz. <laughs> Yeah, I'll have a go. The gearbox allows the rear wheels of a car to corner at different speeds. Is that science fact or science fiction? Fact. No, it's something called a differential that allows the back wheels of a car to go round the corner at different speeds. The gearbox just connects the engine to the drive shaft, apparently. And bamboo flowers every 120 years, James. Fact or fiction? Um, fiction. Sorry, that's exactly right. About once every 120 years, once in a blue moon, our blue bamboo. Great question, though, uh, James. I like that. (laughs) Thanks for joining us on The Naked Scientist. Bye now. If you want to give us a question, we have just uh, ten minutes left of the show. It's Dr Phil, Dr Cat and me, Dr Chris, here on BBC Local Radio, right around the eastern counties. 08459 25 2000 is our phone number, or you can email me, chris at nakedscientist.com. We have a couple of people who've had a go at kitchen science. One of them is in British Columbia in Canada. This has come from Chinders, it says. I suspect the chemical reaction in the light stick will slow down as the temperature is lowered, thus reducing the glow intensity, but also prolonging the glow duration. That's one speculation. And we also have Universe Milky Way, <laughs> Negin, I 
I think that's how it's pronounced from London, says, Hi, I think the sticks placed in the ice, nothing will happen, and this is because the cold surrounding freezes all the peroxide atoms and so no further reaction will take place. Interesting ideas. Do you have an, uh, an opinion on this? If you've had a go at our experiment, 08459 25 2000. If you get the answer right, then you could win yourself a prize. Stripping down science. OK, let's do it. The Naked Scientists. Coming up very shortly, we'll be heading back to Astley Cooper School in Hartford where Derek and Dave are doing these experiments with glow sticks. If you want to have a very quick go, you've got to get a glow stick and plunge it into ice to see what happens to it and then explain the science. 08459 25 2000. I've got a question here uh, from Grant Morgan. It says, Hi Naked Scientist, Dr Chris and Dr Cat. Why does ouzo turn milky white when water is added? It must be mainly water to start with. And as the concentration of alcohol decreases, the amount does not, so I think anything would precipitate out the alcohol. I enjoy your show a lot. I only found it a month ago, but I've listened to most of your old shows while riding on the crowded subways here in Tokyo. What do you think about that? What do you think the answer is? Any suggestions? You're not an Uzo fan? I'm not. I think it's absolutely revolting. (laughs) Dr Phil, any suggestions? I'm afraid I haven't got a clue. Well, I did did have a little think about this, and um, and I realised, actually, we've done a kitchen science experiment on precisely this. It's an emulsion. And the oil, which makes the the very delicate flavours of Uzo, dissolves dissolves very nicely (laughs) in alcohol, but it doesn't dissolve very well in water. So when you add water, you eventually reach a critical concentration of the alcohol being... Um, mopped up by water if you like and the oil eventually stops binding onto the alcohol and starts only hanging around with other oil molecules and so you get these little aggregations of oil and that's why it turns milky white because if you were to zoom in with a very powerful camera you'd see these tiny globules of the oils like the anise oil for instance that gives it its aniseedy flavour and then they will be completely surrounded by water molecules and this is exactly how paint works emulsion paint that you slap on the wall is exactly the same you have oily paint molecules surrounded by water you put the paint on the wall the water evaporates the oil molecules then all glue together and glue to the wall and they don't get washed off in future in the rainstorm do i have to take my clothes off now uh, we'll spare you that one. Shall we head back to that school and find out what's happening uh, with Derek and Dave, who are at Astley Cooper School, to look at rates of reaction and what happens when you plunge glow sticks into ice? Derek. Hello and welcome back to Astley Cooper School. Uh, we're still here with some glow sticks in ice, which we are just about to attend to. Uh, but I must firstly let you know that we have some very, very keen students who've been helping us with this. And uh, actually, t- the two that we just had earlier on, uh, Tom and Jody, have given way to two more uh, enthusiastic volunteers. So could I just get you guys to tell me your names quickly? Uh, hi, I'm Alex. I'm Louise. Thank you, guys. And you guys are also in Year 11, so that's great of you to come along. Anyway, what we've been doing, of course, is we had some glow sticks. Um, we cracked them, we saw them glow, and then we put them into some very cold ice. And uh, we've been seeing what happens. So, um, guys, Alex, firstly, could you, could you tell me, I mean, what's happened to that glow stick that we've got in the ice? Um, well, it's not glowing as much as it was. OK, then. And, Louise, I mean, in your hand now, we've got one that hasn't been put in ice. This is our control. It's the one where we haven't kind of done something to it. It's just been glowing there nicely. So can you compare them? I mean, how are they different? Um, this one's got a lot more light intensity, where the other's started to fade a lot. It's just more dull colour now. OK, and how long do you think it actually took for it to fade? Probably about five, ten minutes. Yeah, so it was pretty quick, really. It happened quite quickly. So, so there we go. Anyway, Alex, I mean, have you got any idea why it's happening? Why have we seen this one in the ice go, go much dimmer? Is it, like, because the ice has taken the energy away from the glow stick? Okay, and Louise, any ideas? Why has it gone much dimmer, do you think? I don't know, maybe it's like just slow down the reaction between the chemicals. 
Okay, well, Dave is here to reveal all from his mass of science knowledge, which he shares with us every week. Uh, Dave, what's happening? When you break the glow stick, you mix the two different kinds of chemicals together. Now, the two molecules, they repel each other gently. So if there's not much energy there, if it's cold, they'll kind of just gently bounce off each other and they won't react. But if you heat it up, firstly, everything's moving around fast, so they bounce into each other more often. And secondly, when they do bounce, they bounce much harder, so they're much more likely to react. So the hotter it gets, the more energy there is, and the faster the reaction goes. So there's going to be more reactions every second, so there's going to be more light produced. But of course, this one that we've got in the ice, I mean, we haven't actually stopped the reaction there, have we? No, it'll be going on very slowly, but so slowly you can't really see it. Now, Louise, if you could take one of these glow sticks out and warm up one half of it. So Louise has basically got her fist kind of clenched around one half of the glow stick, which was just in the glass. Um, What's it like? It's very cold at the moment. So what's happened now? Um, The end that I've just had in my fist has started to glow again like it did before we put it in the ice, whereas the other half still faded. Okay, and why do you think that's happened? Because it's got more energy now. It's managing to... um, The collisions are happening faster and the uh, reaction's happening again. Okay, yeah. So I suppose where she was gripping it, that was quite warm there, wasn't it, compared to the ice? Basically, yes, the glow stick was sucking some of the energy out of her hand, which is why her hand got cold and painful, and the reaction speeded up now. Wasn't too painful, I hope. No, not that bad. (laughs) Okay, good. So this glow stick then, I mean, it's gone very dim, but actually how long will it stay kind of lit at that rather dim level? Well, you've got a fixed amount of chemical in there, and each each bit of chemical will give out a certain amount of light. So you can either give out all of that light all at once in a great big burst of glory when it's hot, or you can spread that over a long time. And a glow stick, when it's cold, maybe will last a couple of weeks. So if you freeze your glow stick and warm it up again, it should still be glowing in a week's time. Now, of course, earlier on, Dave uh, said that we were going to be explaining why lizards like to bask in the sun and many other things. And this is very relevant to that. So, so Dave, how's that? Well, an animal, I mean, even you, is entirely run by chemical reactions. So if you cool it down, all those chemical reactions are going to come slower and slower and slower. So a lizard, on a cold day, all of its reactions will get really, really slow. And that means it can get caught by other animals and it'll get eaten really easily. So what it wants to do is get out in the sun, heat up as quickly as possible, so it can run away from any threats. Okay, so it's got to be dependent on what it does and where it lies and so on to be warm. But are we like this? Well, we've evolved to get over this problem. Basically, we keep ourselves warm. This is incredibly expensive because we burn a huge amount of our food keeping ourselves warm. But it does mean that we can get up in the morning much quicker. Some people (laughs) Indeed, yes. Well, I mean, that means technically on a cold day we can still operate at the same speed, although I'm convinced that I probably don't. But anyway, good. Okay, so that's the experiment then. You guys now know all about glow sticks. Alex, how did you like the experiment? Uh, I found it really interesting. Okay, good stuff. And you're going to go and buy some glow sticks? And... Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, I'll definitely buy glow sticks. Are they expensive, actually, Dave? Um, depends where you buy them from. They're about a quid in a shop, but we got these for 5p each because we bought 1,000. Okay, well, if you want to buy 1,000, you're very welcome. Uh, Louise, how did you like the experiment, finally? Yeah, it's good to find out how they work, so... Okay, well, thank you very much for that, and thank you to you, Dave, as well. Uh, We will, of course, be back next time with some more uh, fun science from us, the Naked Scientists. Until then, it's goodbye from Ashley Cooper School in Hemel Hempstead. Thank you, Derek. And uh, people all over the world love our podcasts and they love our kitchen science. Here we have Shane, who's at the Karolinska Institute in Sweden. He says that he loves the experiments. He's writing up his thesis, but he does our kitchen science. So that's great. Thank you, everyone at home, for listening to us on The Naked Scientist here this evening. Our quiz winners were Cynthia for Kitchen Science, and she's in British Columbia in Canada. Jenny's in Great Yarmouth, and she won our quiz. Next week, we'll be finding out about the science of seduction and Cupid's chemistry as we go hunting for the molecules that make you attracted to each other, especially for Valentine's Day. Thank you.
Fancy listening to the naked scientists in your bed, <laughs> on your way to work, or even at work? Why not subscribe to our podcast? For more information, visit nakedscientist.com forward slash podcast.